Church family, if you've not yet opened your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3, if you're using one of the Bibles, the seat back in front of you, this is page 1016. We'll be looking at verses 13 through 22 this morning. In the coming weeks, one of the classes that we'll offer and equip is on church history. A reason for this is because we understand that there are valuable lessons that we can learn from the church. Lessons that we can learn from how they acted, how they responded, what they walked through, And we understand that these things can encourage and edify us. History shows us how the church has valued and followed Christ over the ages. I remember in my early 20s being encouraged to read through Fox's Book of Martyrs. It's a book that collects stories and accounts of brothers and sisters who have suffered for the name of Christ. One of the most famous accounts in the book is that of Polycarp. Polycarp was the disciple of John the Apostle. He was one of the elders in the church of Smyrna. If you remember, this is one of the churches that receives a letter from Christ in the book of Revelations. And in this time period and in this era the church, early church, is still under the realm of the Roman Empire. And the early church is still being hated by them, persecuted by them. And Polycarp is one of the individuals who's taken into custody. And he's brought to an arena. And I just want you to hear a little bit of the exchange that happens between him and the one who is charging him. Listen to these words. The proconsul urged, reproach Christ and I will set you free. Eighty-six years have I served him, Polycarp declared. And he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? I wish I had time to read the full account. It's actually very fascinating But in the face of persecution, in the face of death, Polycarp did not waver from his devotion to Christ. And he would actually graciously die for the name of Jesus. How was this man, along with with many other brothers and sisters throughout church history and even today, able to endure suffering for the name of Christ? How were they able to endure for doing good and for righteousness' sake? How are we to do that today? That's the question that Peter answers for us in our passage today. He helps us to see how one can endure in the midst of suffering for doing good. Our main point for today is very simple. It's, it's this. Christ is Lord. Thus, 
we can endure suffering for righteousness' sake. Christ is Lord, thus we can endure suffering for righteousness' sake. Today, we're going to look at four truths about the person of Jesus Christ that will help us endure suffering for that which is good or that which is righteous. And so first, as we begin, I want us to look at the holiness of Christ. I want us to look at the holiness of Christ. Look at your Bibles, verses 13 through 15. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor honor Christ the Lord as holy. In the first two verses, Peter brings us back to light the idea of suffering in the life of the believer. And before we consider the rhetorical question that he's asking in verse 13, I want us to consider what the good is that's addressed in the verse. What is it what that, that what is it when he means what is good? Well, I don't think that good is precisely synonymous with the idea of righteousness that we see in verse 14. If you look in verse 14, he says, even if we should suffer for righteousness sake, I don't think that they are necessarily synonymous. But I do think that they are similar in the category when you consider those things that honor God. That which is good honors God. That which is righteous honors God. And, and so Peter is, is wanting, to see, wanting us to see that sometimes there are, there are times where we will suffer for doing what's good, suffer for what is righteous. And, and honestly, First Peter has been helping us see exactly what that means. If you remember in chapter 1, verse 15, Peter tells the church, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Immediately after that, in verse 17, he says, Conduct yourselves with fear through the time of your exile. This would be in reference to the fear of God. But then a few verses later, Peter says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again. We see Peter go on to say in chapter 2 that the, the charge, he charges us with putting away malice and deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander. He concludes this idea in verse 12 when he says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So as they see your good deeds and they may glorify the God on the day of visitation. We see that subjection in the areas of life that God has called us to when done for the sake of Christ is an act of good. This section in chapter 2 and 3 is still part of the greater context that began in the middle of chapter 2. I think we can summarize that that which is good and righteous are not purely things that are done in good deeds. But it's when you live as to fear of God in your conduct It takes into consideration your heart and your heart before God and how what you believe about God 
allows for you to do in good deeds. Let me give you an example. For instance, when your coworkers are speaking ill against your boss, doing what is good and right would be not to participate. But it can also be to act in accordance with what is good and right before the eyes of God. Or think of another instance. It's living rightly before the eyes of God in accordance with his word and not wavering despite a culture that is growing in opposition of that. So sometimes doing good or living for righteousness sake is when we hold fast to the word of God in the midst of a culture that hates it. Peter is saying that harm can be targeted to those who do good. That suffering can come to those looking to abide in righteousness. But I want you to see that there are two imperatives or commands that Peter gives us in this section. The first one is found in verse 14. He says, have no fear of them, nor be troubled. One translation says, do not fear their intimidation, and do not be in dread. Peter is commanding the people of God not to fear the opposition that comes Not to fear the harm that comes. Not to fear the consequences of living for good or righteousness that may come. This is is the command that Peter is giving to the church. Now I know what you're thinking. That's difficult. That's hard. You might be thinking, I'm scared of everything. I'm, I'm scared when someone just asks me if I believe, if I'm a Christian. I want you to know that Peter does not leave us, leave us standing, but he gives us a second command. And it follows immediately after this. He gives us another imperative. He, he, he turns our attention from fear and he, he sets it on something. Look at what he says. Peter says, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. So he, he gives us a contrast. Don't fear man. He says, look at Christ as holy. I love how the New American translates this. It says, but sanctify or set apart Christ as Lord in your hearts. Sanctify or set apart Christ as Lord in your hearts. Peter knows that we are prone to fear and to trouble and to be troubled. He knows it better than any of us. Am I right? In his his Savior's greatest need, Peter cowered. Peter was so confident when he had a sword in his hand standing next to the Messiah. But the moment that the Messiah was removed from him, he cowered. The scripture says he cowered before a servant girl asking him questions about, who, about his, his connections with Christ. Peter knows that we can fall into fear, that we can fall into feeling dread or intimidation, but he, he doesn't just say, stop it, don't do that anymore. He tells us where or to whom we have to look to. 
But what does it mean to honor Christ as holy? What's it mean to set him apart in our hearts? I want you to know these, these two, two commands are actually a quotation that Peter is using from Isaiah chapter 8. Peter is quoting Isaiah chapter 8. He's, he's taking us all the way back to Isaiah chapter 8. And in this chapter, the people are waiting. They are dreading over an, an imminent attack from their enemies. They know it too. The Assyrians are coming and they know it. And they are extremely fearful. They're so scared. And the Lord is speaking to Isaiah and he's instructing him the prophet, not to be like the people who had disobeyed God and were now failing to trust in him. And the Lord said in these verses of, to Isaiah in verse 12, he says, do not fear what they fear, nor be, nor be in dread. He says, but the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. He says, Isaiah Put your trust in Yahweh. Put your trust in God. Honor the Lord of hosts. In quoting this verse, Peter, instead of using Yahweh, adds Christ in this place. Do you see that? He's, he's taking Yahweh, the Lord of hosts, out, and he's, and he's entering in Christ. And this is so important because Peter is reminding the exiles, he's reminding the people of God that Jesus Christ is God. He's reminding the people of, of God that Jesus Christ is Yahweh. And, and this is what it means to honor Christ as holy. When we, when we speak about the holiness of Christ, when we speak about the holiness of God, we are not just speaking of his infinitely immutable and perfect morality. But we are also speaking how God in his essence of being is completely and utterly different and distinct and set apart and holy from us as his created beings. Listen to Hannah when she's praying to the Lord in 1 Samuel chapter 2. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Listen to King David in 1 Chronicles 17, 20. There is no one like you, O Lord, and there is no God besides you. According to all that we have heard with our ears. David is saying, we haven't even, we haven't heard of anything that comes close to Yahweh. This is what the Lord says of himself in Isaiah chapter 46. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. What does it mean to honor Christ in our hearts as holy is not only to remember that he is utterly perfect. He, he definitely is. He is utterly perfect but it's also to remember that he is utterly distinct from all of his creation. We are not like him. There is, there is a clear distinction between the creator and the created. Distinct, he is distinct and perfect in all of his ways. 
Some of those include his power, his wisdom, his love, his majesty, and the exercising of his judgment and his will. And this truth matters. This truth about God matters because this is why Peter gives us a rhetorical question in verse 13. Do you see that in verse 13? He gives us a question does not have uh, he gives us a question that does not have present suffering in sight, but he's taking the view of judgment. He's taking the, the final day into consideration, and he says, now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? The answer, no one. There is no one. There is no one on the final day who will harm you when God is God and you are his. This is what we just read in Romans chapter 8. If God is for us, who can be against us? Who is there to condemn us? Notice in verse 14, he says, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Some translate that, that last phrasing, you are blessed. And I think both are true and appropriate. I think Peter has a future blessing in mind, and we'll, we'll talk about that later. But, but it doesn't negate that we are recipients of blessings today. I want you to just look up very quickly at verse 12 and see some of the blessings that are ours in this verse. Notice that, that God is the one who governs the universe. He is sovereign and in control. He's the one who sustains the created order with the power of his word. And notice that his eyes are on the righteous. Notice that his ears are towards us. Notice that he opposes the wicked that are against his people. Church family, these are blessings that we are recipients of today to know that we are his, to know that he sees us, to know that he hears us, to know that he is our rock and our defender. This is why we do not fear as we set Christ as Lord in our hearts, we remember that he is God and that there is no one like him. And this is the God that we serve. This is the God that we have entrusted ourselves to. This is the God whose eyes are on us. He hears our prayers. He hears our concerns. This is a first truth about Christ that allows us to endure suffering for righteousness' sake, but I want you to see the second truth, and these are found in verses 15 and 16. And that is the hope of Christ. Look at what Peter says, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason, for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Peter tells us that when we follow these commands, when we are not fearful of man, specifically those who look to harm us or cause us to suffer, 
and we are instead fearing God, honoring God, we should be ready to answer questions that come our way. Questions of why we seem so hopeful. Questions of why we are not responding the way they expect us to respond. Typically, this verse is used to encourage and support something like formal apologetics. And I want you to know that's, that's vital and that's important. We need people uh, considering the questions of the world and answering them in formal settings. But, but don't forget the context. Don't forget the context of 1 Peter. This is not necessarily the, the formal setting that, that he's writing to. He's writing, Peter is writing to those who have been exiled. Peter's writing to those who are experiencing some level of persecution, some level of mistreatment in the commonality of their lives. And Peter is encouraging them. He's encouraging these people to be ready with a defense for when, they are, for when others come to ask them about their hope. What type of hope do we have, church? What type of hope do we have? Peter's already told us back in chapter 1, verse 3. Peter says, it's a living hope that's grounded in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In chapter 1, verse 13, Peter commands us to set our hope fully on the grace of God. And in chapter 1, verse 21, Peter ultimately tells us to turn our hope in God himself. Remember, our hope in the coming of Christ is sure. His coming is guaranteed. And we can be confidently, and we can confidently wait in expectation of this. And all that our hope brings is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Our hope in Christ changes everything. It specifically changes the way we view every difficult path, every challenging circumstance, and in this context, it even changes how we view our enemies. It changes how we view those who ridicule, revile, or slander us. This is why we can endure and persevere in the midst of harm and wrongdoing in this lifetime. Because we can be confident that our God will ultimately preserve and care for his people. Do you have hope today? Are you hopeful today? If you're a Christian and you feel hopeless today, I just want to encourage you to, to, to speak with someone today. Tell someone around you, a member of the church, tell them your sentiment. Tell them that you feel discouraged. Tell them that you are growing weary of doing good. Tell them that you feel hopeless today. And let the people of God encourage you with his word today. Let them remind you of who our God is and what he has promised for his people. Let them remind you of his character, 
of his greatness and his goodness, of his love and his faithfulness. If you're a Christian, if you're not a Christian today and you feel hopeless, I can tell you with confidence based on the authority of God's word, it's because your eyes are on the things of this world. And the things of this world are always fading away They're passing away, and they will not last. But the the scriptures teach us and instruct us about one who is eternal and everlasting. One in whom hope can be found, and his name is Christ. I would encourage you to ask someone here if they have the hope of Christ and to listen to their answer today. Church, if you were asked today for the hope that is within you, how would you answer this question? Where in the scriptures would you point to as evidence of your hope? How would you respond if someone asked you, how can you be so hopeful when it seems like our society and the country seems to only be growing darker? Is your hope founded in the resurrection of Jesus? Or is your hope founded in just four more years? How would you respond if someone asked you, how can you have hope after that loss? How can you have hope in the midst of your sickness? How would you respond? Is your hope founded in the resurrection of Jesus? Maybe you're getting picked on at school for following Jesus. And a student asks, why do you just take it? Why do you keep taking the ridicule? Why have you not, why have you not lashed out in anger? Is it because your hope is rooted in the resurrection of Jesus? What would your response be? I hope I can provide you with just a helpful starting point by asking them the question, have you heard about the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Church family, this is where our hope is founded in. But notice at the end of verse 15, Peter also cares about how we respond. Peter says, do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience. Again, that which is good and righteous is not only an outward action, but it's inward posture and condition. How have you responded in the past when you've been asked for defense? Do you, do you demonstrate respect to the one mocking or reviling? Are you gentle? Do you know that with gentleness, there is always intentionality? I remember when uh, Lila was born, our first child, I was so scared I was going to break her. I mean, I would put her down like she was a stick of dynamite, and I was just hoping I wouldn't make one wrong move. Gentleness is intentional. It's seeking not to break or harm. Are you gentle in your response? 
Can you say that you walk away with a good conscience? Is there something coming up in your heart and mind even today as you think about this? Listen to Proverbs 15.1. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Our response and how we respond in these moments demonstrates whose glory we are truly after. Look at verse 16. Peter says, So that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. When will it be that those who slander and revile the children of God, be, will they be put to shame? And Peter's, again, pointing us by the verb tenses that we see to the day of judgment, to something in the future, to, to a day when God will vindicate his people. But look at verse 17. He says, it's better to suffer for doing good if, we should be God, if it should be God's will than for doing evil evil, Peter continues the line of thinking, considering the last day of judgment. He says, it's better to suffer today for doing good than on the last day for doing evil. Peter's encouraging the church in the final chapter of his letter, as we'll see in, in just a few weeks, he's reminding him that, reminding them that the suffering of this world is but for a little while. But not only can we suffer for righteousness sake, as we consider the holiness of Christ and we set our hope in him, but Christ is exemplified, but Christ exemplified and patterned this hope for his people. So let's look at the example and the work of Christ. Look at verses 18 through 21. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as the removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a consciousness through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Peter points to the person of Jesus Christ and begins in verse 18 with the word for. And this entire section acts as a reason or a ground for the previous verses. And actually, the, this line of thought actually is carried even into our passage for next week. Peter says we can suffer for righteousness' sake when we are reviled because we have the perfect example in Jesus Christ. Christ suffered, uh, and all throughout the New Testament, we see that his sheep would follow in the same way of the shepherd. He told us this himself in Mark chapter 8, verse 34. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Christ obeyed the will of the Father perfectly, and he gave us an example on how to suffer when doing good. In the case of Christ, he gave us the example of how to suffer when one is perfectly good. But notice all that is accomplished by the suffering of Christ on our behalf. Look, he, look at what the scriptures say. It says, he suffered once for sins. Our greatest need and our biggest concern was that our sin had separated us from God. It was leading us to death. And Paul tells us in Colossians 2.14 that Christ canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it on the cross. 
It was our sin, and yet Christ suffered. Peter says, the righteous for the unrighteous. The righteous one, the one who alone is good, suffered in the place of the unrighteous. Christ stood in our place, and he bore our punishment, and he bore our sin, church. Listen to what the scripture says, for while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ suffered and he died in the flesh and was raised by the Spirit. And this is what we see at the end of verse 18. But why has Christ suffered? Do you see that in your, in your Bibles? I want you to look at verse 18. So that he might bring us to God. God saves to bring his people back to himself. If you were to go back to verse 9 uh, of chapter 3, this is, this is the blessing that we obtain. We get to dwell with God. We get to stand in his presence face to face. We get to enjoy him forever. This is what we receive because Christ suffered in our place. I don't want us to move too quickly. Christ has brought us near. I know at times you can feel like God is distant. But the scriptures teach us no such thing for those who are in Christ. He is not distant. He is near. We forsake, but he does not. I want to remind you of that truth this morning. We, we sang about it this morning. We have access to God because of the great high priest who has brought us near. And as we look to verses 19 through 20, I want you to know that this is interpretation of this passage is debated Look at verses 19 and 20. In which we went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey. And when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. The debate really centers on verse 19 and trying to answer the question, where did Jesus go to proclaim and to whom did Jesus proclaim? And I think the most likely option is to understand that Christ preached to the people of Noah's day through Noah. And I think that Peter himself provides evidence for this. In, in chapter 1, verse 11, we're told that the prophets prophesied through the Spirit of Christ. In, chapter, in, in 2 Peter chapter 2, we also see that Peter calls Noah a heralder of righteousness, a preacher of righteousness. But what do these verses teach us? Well, in these verses, we see a pattern, one of many that's given to us in the scriptures of when the people of God proclaim the message is rejected, and yet God always preserves and saves his people. This is what we see in the story of Noah. God is long-suffering. He is patient with wickedness. He is patient with sin, and yet he never discards his people. And after giving an Old Testament example, Peter provides a New Testament illustration of this truth in verse 21. 
He says, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as the removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Peter says that baptism pictures or symbolizes what occurred in the story of Noah. First, I want to quickly say that Peter is not saying that the act of baptism is that which saves. Peter has already said and mentioned in the context that we are brought near to God because Christ has suffered and died and has been made alive in the Spirit. But he also said in the beginning of the letter that we were made alive through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he actually ends this verse with that same idea, that we are saved through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But throughout, the script, but throughout scriptures, we see water as acting as a type of judgment. We see this in the picture of the flood with Noah, water acting as a type of judgment. We see it in the Red Sea with Pharaoh and his armies being swallowed up by the waters. Water typically presents judgment. In the same way, baptism communicates judgment and salvation. When a believer gets baptized, they are communicating their faith in Christ. And they identify with the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus. And in some way, judgment has occurred. Just not on the believer. It's a picture that Christ has borne our judgment. Listen to what... Peter says just a chapter before, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. We are brought safely through the waters of God's judgment because of the blood of Jesus Christ. We can endure suffering because Christ is holy. There is no one like him. We can place all our hope in him he has provided an example, and his work has secured us. But the last thing I want us to see very quickly is the victory of Christ. Look at the end of verse 22. Who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. I wanted to end with this truth of Christ to encourage us because Peter is reminding us where Christ has gone. Christ is in heaven. He's at the right hand of God. And everything, everything is under his subjection. Everything is under his rule. This verse displays the victory of Christ accomplished on the cross. And this is the example of Christ to its fullest. That while Christ suffered for a little while, he is now exalted and glorified in the heavens. And this is our same hope today. That while we suffer for a little while, we too will reign with Christ for all eternity. In our suffering, Jesus still reigns. In our suffering, Jesus still rules, and this truth is a great comfort for our hearts. I pray that you see today that in the midst of unjust suffering, we can endure for righteousness' sake because of who Christ is. 
He is Lord over, ev- he is Lord over all things, and there is no one like him. And his work on the cross gives us hope that is undefiled and unperishable. We have a God who sits in the heavens and he does as he please. How do we respond very quickly? How do we respond? I want to just give you three quick ways. First, you consider the greatness of God. Consider the greatness of God. My, my prayer for you, church, is that when you open your Bibles this week to meet with the Lord, you would, you would ask him to reveal more of his greatness, more of his splendor, more of his majesty, more of his character, more of his great acts to you. That you would ask him to help you see him in newer ways based on the scriptures and refreshed in just truly how great our God is. I want you to know our view of God shapes how we view everything else, everything else including the unjust sufferings that we might experience. Do you know, this is why we teach a class like the attributes of God and we, and we rotate it throughout. This is why we are about to get ready to teach our preschoolers and our children on Wednesday nights about the attributes of God. Because we want to all grow in our view of who God is. I hope you hear this. Our current view, our current view, mine included, of God is too small. And I know this because this is how distinct he is from us. He is infinite in all his ways. But we will get to spend eternity growing in our knowledge and understanding of who he truly is. But today, today, would you just consider his greatness? Secondly, would you cultivate hope in your heart? Would you cultivate hope in your heart? Our hope is founded on the gospel message, on what Christ has accomplished already on our behalf and the ramifications of it in our lives. And in moments where we feel hopeless, I pray that you would turn to the scriptures, that you would turn to the church And be reminded of the hope that we have in God. Look to God's word and be reminded of the gospel message. Be reminded of the resurrection and all that is accomplished on our behalf because of that. And cultivate the hope that is in your heart. Lastly, set your eyes on the return of Christ. Set your eyes on the return of Christ. You know, it's easy to lose sight on Christ's return. Do you remember as children how excited you were for your birthday to come around? I love when I talk to a child and they're like, my birthday is in eight months. (laughs) And I'm like, man, you're really, really counting down the days there, right? And I don't know if this is because they can't tell time yet or they don't know how calendars work. But children have such an easy way of holding on to future dates and expecting with heightened anticipation for its arrival. It's like they don't get discouraged that it's farther away. It only 
bolsters their, their anticipation. Church family, in the same way, we should long for the return of Christ. We should wait each day with expectation and anticipation for his return. We should pray this on a daily basis. Lord, let your kingdom come. We should pray, Lord, come for us. Come quickly, come and gather us with you. Consider the greatness of God. Cultivate hope in your heart today and set your eyes on his return. As you suffer for that which is unjust, consider that Christ is Lord over all. Would you pray with me, Father, in the name of Jesus? And we thank you for your word that provides encouragement for our hearts today. Father, you knew that the the pathway was narrow and that only few would find it. You knew that it would be difficult. And in your grace and your mercy, you've given us your word that, that teaches us and instructs us how to endure. And so, Lord, I do pray, mindful of brothers and sisters around the world that are being persecuted today, For the name of Christ, Lord, would you strengthen their hearts today? Would you help them to rest in the hope of the resurrection today? Would you set their eyes on Christ today? And would you help us who might not be experiencing the greatness of that suffering just yet, help us to, to hold these convictions in our hearts, to hold these truths in our hearts For for as what your word says, for the day when we will be slandered or reviled for your name. Lord, would you build your people up today with your word? Would you move in our hearts today through the power of your spirit? We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.